Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. The perfectionists have high but really vague expectations. Things like, I want to do really well or I want to be liked by everyone. And so sometimes it's that vagueness. There's no boundaries around it either. You don't have to let go of, you know, your high achieving standards, but they need to be placed in the right place. What I see with a lot of students, it's not their knowledge. It's not the content that's the issue. It's their process when they're taking the exam. Welcome to the Elevate podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. Today's guest is a kind, insightful professional whose greatest passion is helping high achievers raise their standard of performance in sport, life, work and academics. Her drive and confidence with helping high achievers is modestly paralleled by her own exceptional personal achievements. She has the gift of propelling performance for others as a psychologist that can be attributed to a great many years of experience and hard work, which has positioned her as a highly sought after consultant in Singapore, where she resides and works now. Both her master's and doctorate degrees focused on the study of perfectionism in sport. Her work with perfectionistic, striving high achievers has led to effective strategies for adapting and developing habits that lead to thriving high performance, but without the weight of self-pressure and self-criticism. Originally from Australia, she completed her first two degrees in psychology in the US while accepting an athletic scholarship to play NCAA Division I collegiate golf. She finished with an All-American Academic Honours and attributes her career as a sport and performance psychology to the success that she found in both these areas. She has established a reputation for writing on a variety of topics in sports psychology, having written for a number of publications in golf and wellness. Having worked as a resident sports psychologist at the Singapore Sports School for three years, she transitioned into private practice into the Singapore Sports Medicine Centre in 2014. These days, her niche area is working with young student athletes experiencing performance anxiety, teaching them strategies to thrive in the competitive setting. She doesn't just work with athletes, though. In her daily practice, she teaches young students effective study habits, helps adults manage stress and other health-related dilemmas, and she consults with elite athletes across Asia. These include professional golfers on the Asian Tour, Thailand's top swimmers in preparation for the Asian Games, and previously the Singapore Sailing Team for the Rio 2016 Olympic Games. Her focus is always to help, and more often than not, she is there to help them achieve 
and raise their standard of performance. Well, we could not be more excited to be welcoming our guest, Dr. Jay Lee Nair, to the Elevate podcast today. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Thank you. It's so lovely to be part of your wonderful podcast and your vlog. Oh, it's really, really exciting to have you. As I was saying just off air, um, some of the work that you do is absolutely fascinating. You cover so many facets of high performance of all ages. But I thought today we would focus mostly with young students and young folks, especially those who might be um, pursuing any kind of sports or athletics, uh, but not necessarily. That isn't all you do. I know you work with teens across the board. So I'm really excited to get uh, a deeper look at all the work that you're doing. However, before we start, I would love to um, know a little bit more about you as a young student and a teen. I know you grew up in Australia and you've spent some time in the US. So I would love to know what life in school was like for you. Well, for me um, as a teen, uh, golf was really my world. And um, I was already playing at a very high level as a teen in Australia, um, part of the, you know, sort of the national team, the state team. And that really sort of was my key passion. Um, but I would say that as a golfer, I was highly competitive, but I'd say quietly competitive um, because I, I think underneath, I wasn't actually that confident. Um, I think I always wanted to win uh, and I was incredibly focused and very hardworking, but I'd say underneath, not that confident. Um, I think, yeah, and, and very, I think always very nervous. I think I probably would have had a lot of anxiety that definitely gone, you know, went sort of unrecognized or, you know, even for myself. Um, and yeah, sort of my parents were just stereotypical Aussies that are very much like, oh, don't be nervous. You'll be right. Just get out there, you know, go and do it. So of course, you know, I always confronted things and definitely, you know, sort of tackled things head on. but. I think that definitely for me, if I had a chance, I think to work a little bit more extensively on my confidence and then also how to manage general anxiety, I think, yeah, it would have been even better. Goodness me. So how did you discover that you were such a talented golf player? Oh, so nice of you to ask that. I think, um, well, I started really young um, and my dad you know, had three girls and I think he wanted to have three boys and make them all professional golfers. Um, but we were all very good in, um, in our own right, all, all of my sisters. Um, and I think I started to realize that I was, I was good. I mean, all the, way, all the way through my teens, I think I was quite a dominant player. So even though I was yeah, incredibly anxious, I definitely was able to, to win, um, to win tournaments. But I, I, don't, I think I had a lot of comfort, really. I think that's generally the, the key. Yeah, the key yeah. thing. So tell me then, is it this being able to relate to young people because of the experiences you had that helps you navigate the work that you do today? Or how did you decide to get into the work that you're doing today? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think I didn't really, um, I don't think I really reflected on it in, you know, in, in the way that I, I could have until I got older um, and sort of started to, you know, put myself, you know, back there and say, yeah, like I definitely can understand at a personal level and a professional level what some of my teen athletes go through um, very, very strongly. And I think that does really, I think, um, you know, that, that to me, I think 
makes my my work um, come alive uh, in that respect. Um, so yeah, so I think I think the relatability is very very strong. Um, but yeah, I really didn't decide to do sports psychology until I was already well and truly into my master's degree um, in psychology. But it definitely, you know, is the, the right fit. Um, so yeah, so I think for me, like what I see with a lot of the young teens is that I understand the incredible sort of anxiety and frustration that they have when, like myself, um, they're really hardworking. Um, they, you know, thrive in training but they have this, you know, really high expectation in terms of what they want their performance to look like. And sometimes it just doesn't, it doesn't come out. They don't have the control. Um, and really like a lot of teams that just don't have the skills or the, the tools to help manage, um, you know, high pressure situations or actually help replicate the things that they do really well under pressure. And so that's what I spend a lot of time on. I feel that there's so many moments, you know, growing up where I just didn't, I, I knew how to compete well um, and in terms of like subconsciously, but I never really felt like I understood what, what I'm actually doing. Like to, to, you know, there wasn't really that conscious awareness. And that's what I try and bring to a lot of the athletes so they can control it for themselves. They can build their confidence on those things. And it doesn't, it's just not elusive. It's not like, oh, I hope I will do well or I just hope everything falls into place. Even when you've worked your butt off, you know, in training, um, I want the athletes to, yeah, just to feel like, okay, I know what I can control. I know how to control my thoughts and my focus and my actions. And yeah, and sort of being able to harness that for themselves. And I think that's what, you know, I didn't really feel like I learned until I was a collegiate player, um, which is very, very late on. So I, I really want to help them harness that early. Interesting. So would you say that the greatest challenges you face in the work that you do, and possibly maybe for more differently for the different types of students that you get, but is it to do with anxiety? Is that the, one of the bigger challenges that I'm hearing you say that you need to address? Yeah, 100%. Uh, so 99% of the clients that come through, and, and this is from age eight all the way through the teen years and in their 20s it's performance anxiety that I see most commonly and I see it in students um you know who want to thrive in their academics and I see it in athletes um so that's that's one of the key things that we that I help them work with but on top of that I do think a lot of it has to do with perfectionism and that I can see that starting to grow more and more it's becoming more prevalent so um that's yeah that's something that i am very passionate about working around yes and it leads me beautifully onto my next question which was i was going to say i'm so intrigued by the work that you do on perfectionism especially as the work that elevate is doing is around young adolescent girls who are just emerging into the world of social media and how curated it can all be and i wondered if you wouldn't mind talking to me a little bit more about how we can navigate this balance perfectionism because i'm not suggesting it's a negative all the time um, but there are points at which it becomes detrimental to a young person could you talk us through that a little bit and, and what you suggest are good strategies to help yeah definitely i mean so in terms of the perfectionism i think that this is what creates a lot of the anxieties and a lot of the performance anxiety that i see but perfectionism sometimes just really goes under the radar 
Um, and so I feel like it's one of those things that we have to kind of see, you know, what what other, I guess, what are the, the components to the teen's perfectionism? Um, and sometimes it's uh, these the dialogue that's in their mind, usually things like, um, have I done enough? Or is this good enough? Um, and those sort of thoughts can create the anxiety. And then there's really no boundaries in terms of, well, do I just keep going? Um, do I have to keep making things more perfect? And so there's really no end sometimes to their overstriving, the overdoing things, the sort of um, constant checking of various things, even whether it be, um, you know, social media and constantly checking, you know, how they compare to others. Uh, there's, you know, there's, there's lots of different ways that they'll show that. So that's, so that's sort of the, I guess, the, the dialogue that I hear. Um, and then on top of it is the really high expectations that I think they develop around certain results. And, and the results really just, they, they are just, they're really vague. Um, so even though I see a lot of teams, they have high expectations for themselves. The perfectionists have high, but really vague expectations. So usually it's just things like, I want to do really well, or I want to be liked. Um, I want to be liked by everyone. And, and so sometimes it's that, that vagueness that, that there's no clear, um, there's no boundaries around it either. No specificity. Um, and so, yeah, so there's nothing to latch on to at the end of the day to say, yes, this is enough. Or yes, I'm okay. Or yes, I, I am enough. Um, and so, yeah, this can sort of perpetuate into lots of different spaces. What are they marking their perfectionistic qualities against? I suppose that's the issue. If there's no parameter, there are no boundaries, the problem then perpetuates and becomes a bigger issue. Yeah. And so that's where there's no control. You know, they, they want control because they need to feel like, okay, I'm trying to get things perfect here. Um, but there's no feeling of control because the parameters, there's nothing there. So it's really quite empty in terms of the, the, the markers they're looking for. Um, and so what happens is they end up just trying to overdo things or, um, you know, control everything. And that's where things can get really off track. So one of the, one of the things that I start to look at with my high achievers is actually looking at, um, you know, it's really separating the results from what I call their, their process and starting to look at where they can really build wonderful high expectations in their process but there's things that they can control and there's still error and there's still room for error in those things but they have much more control over their their actions um, and once they once they find that space I think that's where perfectionists can really really thrive because they realize that you don't have to let go of your you know your high achieving standards but they need to be placed in the right place um, so that's what we look at in terms of sport and in terms of academics as well. Um, just really sort of building such a strong connection to their process, things they can build confidence around, things that aren't vague, they're very, very tangible, and, um, and then they can control them on a daily basis. Yeah, and do you, there's a couple of questions related to that. Then do you find that there is a tendency for females over males to have this quality of being high achieving and perfectionist and how that manifests itself 
between males and females? And then secondly, do you find it is something that's innate or something that is learned? Mm, great question. Yeah, so what I do see with, with young girls is um, I believe that with their perfectionism, the and not to say that boys don't have these drivers, but I see it more predominantly in young girls and I see it earlier in young girls, is that um, young girls tend to be conscientious at a much, much younger age than boys. And if we look at the research around conscientiousness and perfectionism, uh, a lot of the time they say there's, there's very, very overlapping ingredients there. Um, and I think that for young girls, the perfectionism starts to be built in the conscientiousness, but also comes from this uh, people pleasing, you know, this need to to want to please their mom and dad, their, their you know, be liked, um, to have the, basically to win the approval and um, of, of everyone around them and to also be thoroughly competent in absolutely everything that they do. And that's something I see, uh, yeah, quite early on in girls. Um, of course, they see it in some boys, but definitely quite prevalent in young girls that drives that perfectionism. Interesting. And did you think it was something that is innate? They're just something that they're born with because of their general makeup? Yes, I do believe that uh, perfectionism has a lot of genetic uh, components. I really do. And so I think that sometimes it's, that's why it goes under the radar too for so long because it's hardwired built in and it also you know they get it from their parents so yeah it's hard to turn a mirror around and face yeah to see where it all comes stems from and then speaking of people pleasing that's a lot of in what the work that i'm doing i'm noticing a lot of girls struggling with that particularly around friendships because they're not just trying to please mum, dad, teachers, they're also trying to please friends. How do you propose that teachers and carers can help? Because I think we all want the best for our young girls. And when we see them doing things like people pleasing to a place where it starts to harm the young child themselves, you want to intervene. And our natural tendency is to sort of shake, you know, shake them a little bit. But I don't know if that's the right answer. I wonder if you could shed some light on that for us. Yeah, I think this is, um, it, it's, it's definitely not easy, um, but I think that, I mean, what I really try and strive for with the young girls in this area is just helping them build a stronger sense of self. And of course, that takes time and there's layers and reflection that need to happen there. But in doing that, I think the first step is helping them identify their strengths. Um, because I do feel in the people-pleasing space and the perfectionism area, they're so good at recognizing all their deficits, all their weaknesses, and, you know, and wanting to constantly fix them and worry about them and feel anxious about that space. But they don't really even identify their strengths or know how to label them. Uh, and so I think this is something that can it can really sort of create a whole new lens for them to start to to think about themselves and then also just be able to act in general, going into any situation and then be able to authentically say, you know, my strength is um, empathic connection or my strength is that spotlight. You know, my strength is actually being the, uh, you know, the one that commands people's attention, but also helping them realize that, using it intelligently and, and owning it. And I think that when they can do that 
really that some things start to change around the people pleasing. Um, they don't start to look for that as a way to start to feel fulfilled. Um, they can sort of hold their own ground when they do start to feel like they're not liked. Um, and yeah, we start to break down some of those things as well around that sort of irrational belief that they need to win everyone's approval all the time. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because it's if you look even around you as women, it cre- it doesn't leave if you haven't <laughs> sorted right. Yeah, it's something that so creeps true. up, and yeah, I personally think that um, my own reflection on this as I design my mentoring program has been interesting for me to think about because it does come from. I think right from when I was little, wanting to make sure everybody around me was in, in, in a good place and happy. And yeah, it's it's a, it's quite worrying, though. And I think what you said there is ensuring that they understand what their strengths are enough that they believe them is the biggest challenge, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And then being able to experience it. Yeah. So I think that's where I love to start. Um, and if I reflect on myself, you know, even as a, you know, a teen, I think that's the work that I, I really didn't um, get to do enough or I didn't get that feedback either. Um, but yeah, I think it makes such a difference. Definitely. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this recent press conference that's got a lot of attention in the media, which the with the tennis player Naomi Osaka. I wondered if you wouldn't mind sharing your views on that because you are in in the world of sport and psychology. I wondered if A, it's more common than we realize and what you think we can do to help people manage that kind of stress and mental health around playing professionally and competitively. And for anyone listening who hasn't seen or known what I'm talking about, it's the, fact that Naomi Osaka recently withdrew from their French Open because of the pressures that she was facing from press conferences and the effect that they were having on her mental health. Yes, you beautifully put it. Um, And yeah, this event, it is, I think, quite controversial um, in terms of, you know, the polarizing views as well that everyone's having. But um, for Naomi to come out, and I think it took a really courageous step to be able to put her foot down and say, this is not healthy for me. I need to remove myself from this toxic environment. And I think that this is something that we all go through in our lives, whether it be a work environment or a social environment, where we're literally just saying, I'm removing myself from this toxicity. So I think it took a lot of guts. For her to do it and but in saying that I do think that there there could have been uh, some sort of safeguarding that you know her support team could have done a long time ago to help her work through these particular um, events now I'm not saying that these events um, don't need reforming I mean some I do believe that this incident could potentially change the nature of these forums and the the press conferences and even the questions that you know perhaps they get asked that sometimes that are really blurring the boundaries between personal life and professional life Um, I think there could be some reform there from this but in saying that even if the environment for whatever reason um, you know she knew potentially all her team knew that this was something she had to face um, and I do think that it is the um, the obligation that her team has to to support her around those things, um, build coping strategies with these particular events, because to some degree, this is 
part of the obligation as a you know a world class um, athlete. So I I just think that she she wasn't getting um, some of the support that she should have psychologically in terms of preparing to be able to manage these situations. Um, so yeah, so that's my take on it. I do think yeah she's brave. Hopefully there will be some reform. But yeah, I think it's important that we take care of our athletes' mental health and, and uh, you know, make sure that they get a lot of that support um, as part of like a proactive plan. The demands are coming, becoming stronger and stronger. Um, it's becoming more physically and emotionally and mentally grueling to be at the top. And it has to be, you know, it has to start to be a priority in terms of the high performance planning. Okay. Now we've used the word high performance quite a little, a lot. And I wondered now if you would answer my question for me, what do you believe in your view make or dictate high performance? What are the attributes that you think make a good high performance athlete or young person? Gee, that's a great question. Um, when it comes to high performance, because I'm, I'm highly process focused as a sports psychologist, and I believe high performance really is about identifying all those wonderful key ingredients that fit into someone's high performance sort of profile or makeup. I don't believe that, um, I think eventually, of course, the results fit into that, but it's just a byproduct of what I call like a high performance process. And um, I think the, the athletes who really thrive and, and do that for a very long period of time have really figured out what their core ingredients are. And this is things like everything that goes into your performance itself in terms of your focus and your thinking, your mindset. It's about the preparation, of course, that goes into, you know, preparing um, to, you know, to, to go into your performance. And it's about how you reflect and, and how you review as well. And um, if we look at the core ingredients, I believe, you know, mental training, it just should be part and parcel of a high performance environment or a high performance plan. And for a lot of athletes, it's an afterthought or it's the thing that they do, you know, just when they have time. Um, but it, it really should be part and parcel of, of their, yeah, their, their plan, not just the physical high performance plan, not just the nutrition. Um, because I think with a lot of the athletes who come to see me, they, they've got those things in place, but they don't believe they're in the high performance category. They're not performing and they're not thriving because there's a huge piece of their puzzle that's missing. And that's the psychology. That's really, really reflecting on so many areas of just personal growth. But I love the fact that you focus on the process a lot in the same way that I keep talking about. It's not the destination, it's the journey, whether it's an exam or whether it's a game or a match or something that really is affecting your your whole professional career. But that's what the other question I had for you is, what do you think or do you feel are some of the lessons from sport that translate probably back into classrooms. I think there are, I personally feel that there are many parallels and I don't necessarily know if we as educators make it a point to highlight those parallels in our teachings across both areas. And I wondered if you might want to share some thoughts for any teachers listening. 
Yes, for sure. Um, I mean, so what I see with a lot of the students that I work with who are clearly high achievers and want to do super well is actually they don't really have much of a process when it comes to their, you know, their study habits or the way they even take an exam. And that's something I actually sort of just really started to look into. First of all, I think um, we don't address procrastination a lot of the time in, um, in the classroom. And we, and this is, I think, one of the biggest issues, especially for perfectionists. It's like they're poison. Um, and so, you know, there are some really easy and strong techniques to, to manage procrastination. So, I mean, I talk a lot with my students about little techniques to help them build a study process, build structure, build systems around things that sort of squash procrastination so that they're able to, you know, really enhance the way that they study and that's part of their process. But then also with the exam taking, what I see with a lot of students who feel like, they, again, they work really, really hard, but they're not able to see the results, um, it's often because it's not their knowledge, it's not the content that's the issue, it's their, their process when they're taking the exam. So we build processes around um, practicing reading the question effectively. We build processes around practicing even not judging the question, being able to process it. So instead of actually studying the material, I try and help them actually practice the key things to take the exam effectively. And um, I found this, this can be really, really helpful. I think one, they realize that this is the key thing to control. Uh, they can control it, they need to practice it. And even just being able to manage anxiety within the exam, having pre-planned tools to help them do that, whether it's a release breath or whether it's taking a pause, but they just haven't built that in. So these are some of the things we also put inside their process. Interesting. And so when we talk about cracking under pressure or the idea that you know your stuff, you know you've maybe prepared for this match or you prepared for this game and you know your drills, you know what you're going to do, you know all the plays. The same thing happens with students who are preparing for exams. They crack under pressure. So is the idea that if you spend as much time preparing yourself with the processes that you can control, that you are then ready for every eventuality on the actual day. And the idea is that you wouldn't then crack. Yeah, that's, I love the way you put it, but that is, that is exactly it. Um, because, you know, in a nutshell, we go back to, you know, the initial conversation, a lot of uh, young, young students, young athletes who are gunning for these top results all the time, they actually don't know their process. Um, so of course, they can crack quite easily under pressure. Um, so that's basically, yeah, what we train, train the process, train how to use it. And then actually on top of it, train how to keep it simple. Because under pressure, we all try to do more, create magic, think harder, more detail. And then, you know, that kind of is when we make mistakes. So yeah, so once they have the process, they learn to trust it in the most simple of ways. Okay, that is really helpful. I love the fact that simplicity is also really key because I think I could just see my hardworking perfectionist students making these really complicated plans as well <laughs> because they want to, you know, overachieve on everything. And, and that, can be, that can be quite hard to navigate at times, I think. 
I wanted to ask you then how you feel personally from your upbringing, what cultural nuances and adjusting to new environments for you personally, it's been three continents, let's say. So you've done Australia, you've been in the US and now you're living here and you've worked here as well. And I wondered how you think that plays into young adolescents when they're at their time of development, how your cultural pressures or emphasis on different aspects of development are given different priorities or in how that might affect a child's mental health or ability to cope in stressful situations? Yeah, that's um, yeah, a really good question. With, um, I guess, with the cultural nuances, I think um, for me growing up in, in Australia, I think it was at a time where I think it was still very much, you know, um, that sort of pragmatic Aussie sort of dialogue that was always in your head, like, you know, you just got to go for it. Uh, you know, it's a lot of uh, just just try and, you know, like the Aussie approach is really just get in there and just go. Um, I didn't really feel like there was a lot of pressure on myself to have to achieve certain results or certain standards. I really did feel like the, you know, a lot of the the message even from teachers and coaches and, and my parents was just, just, just go for it. Um, and so I think, yeah, maybe for me, it was more of my own sort of, you know, personal standards and perfectionism that was, you know, sort of underneath um, my dilemmas. But I think in, in today's world, the generation that we work with, um, the teens here, I think, are facing just a, a huge um, performance culture. I believe that the the culture is all about the pressure to do better, to get the result, because that's, I feel like that's what they're told they need to do if they're going to succeed in life. You think it's external pressures? It's not something that it's intrinsic? I think that it's, I think it's both. I think that it, I think it's definitely become um, an external uh, part of the uh, part of the culture in terms of the performance orientation and um, and I do believe it's becoming more and more individualistic. I think the message is you're in it for yourself. You've got to do better than others if you want to succeed, and you've got to be selfish. You just got to get in there and you got to go, go. You got to succeed. You got to do better. Um, but then I think that's internalized as well. And I think a lot of young teens, especially young girls from an early age, they define themselves by that already. Goodness. And yeah. Yeah. So I think, yeah, it's, it's challenging, but it's definitely not going away. Um, there's some really interesting research that has just come out um, around um, um, basically a society in Canada, the UK and um and, and Australia, and they found that in these cultures, perfectionism has increased significantly in the last decade, and so has individualistic culture, and, um, and yeah, it's not going away. So it's just a matter of us, I think, really, really helping our, our teams to better cope with these things and to have a stronger sense of self as well, and helping them really um, make sure that their identity isn't all locked into performance. Yeah, and also the importance of being interconnected. I don't know about this idea of yeah, continually yeah, thinking about yourself, but 
Yeah, I think that's quite an interesting one. And maybe, maybe this year we'll change that given what we've all just been through with the pandemic. But um, that's just maybe my own little wish. But uh, it'd be nice to see people understanding how we can work towards building a stronger sense of not, well, self, but then to be part of a bigger picture and uh, how we can all work with each other instead of against each other is kind yeah, of yeah that's yeah. a beautiful point i think the yeah. inter interconnectedness can definitely i think create a new lens to operate from and and to also build that identity in a different way for sure what do you think in terms of competition how does that work for you we just talked about this individualistic society so maybe you've answered my question but do you think healthy competition is even a thing is it healthy is it ever healthy or do you think it breeds something in us that just doesn't work well for young people i believe that yeah there is there can be healthy competition for sure um i do feel like it's something that needs to be um sort of not taught but just uh the messages from coaches from parents they really are the ones that create the healthy competition or facilitate it um, because that then you know will trickle down to the peers and to the teams and to the athletes and to the to um, the students and I think that um, the that there is a difference and I often get asked by by our teams what's the difference between like competing um and you know because you because they keep saying you know don't compare don't compare to, to others and then they're like well but you know what's the difference from competing to comparing um and so this is where the healthy competition can really start to shine if teams understand that it is absolutely okay to compete but the way the difference is really in the reflection around those moments if you reflect on your loss against a, you know your your rival and you were reflecting on it as okay so that means they're better than me they're a better, better athlete it means that i'm not good enough and i'm never going to be then this is definitely going to be unhealthy competition and it's comparing but if you're going to create healthy competition then it's about the reflection that's in the space of that's just one day yes they might have beat me that day tomorrow's another day and using those moments as you know markers for confidence for motivation for springboards that's when healthy competition can really shine through but i think that is where parents and coaches can do a lot, lot better in terms of building that healthy competitive drive helping the child helping your teams reflect in that way and I think that uh, there's a true art, I think, in terms of like doing collaborative reflection. And it does not have to be all about performance in terms of uh, the results um, when it comes to the competitive space. Um, so I think, yeah, building a healthy competitive um, culture is possible, but it is created in the reflection. Yeah, I think your your clarification between the two terms is fantastic that's a really helpful again an insightful way i hadn't even thought of it in that context actually but i because i do often talk about comparisonitis being a horrible thing whether it's in sport whether it's in school whether it's within friendships i think it can be quite detrimental but i i love what you've just said there about making the sure those those nuances are there yeah that's really great right 
How do you help teens then who deal with setbacks and failure? Mm, okay. So yeah, when it comes to setbacks and, and it comes to failure, we work extensively on sort of uh, looking at those situations first. Sometimes we actually go deep into looking at um, what are the thoughts and, and the focus around the reflection of these events so that you can see what are the ingredients there. Uh, once we start to look at how they're processing the, the failure, then I will start to look at, um, yeah, like new alternative possibilities um, in terms of processing. And sometimes this is connected to also helping them build new beliefs about failure, um, having a new attitude around mistakes. So we start to sort of look at things in a different lens, helping them sort of pull out the learning experiences, the growth experience, and what failure really does mean at the end of the day. Um, because a lot of the perfectionists especially that I work with, when they are even just going through a challenging training or they feel like they're pushing themselves and it's hard, most of them interpret that as a failed experience because it's hard, it's difficult. So we actually start to look at actually, no, this just means you're, you're succeeding, you're growing. So we try and sort of change the way that they perceive things, the way they process these moments. But it takes time, actually. And I think that uh, a lot of the teams I work with have harbored these setbacks and these, these moments that they feel like they've failed and they hold on to it for a long time. And they don't talk about it to anyone and they don't talk about their coaches. When they come in to see me and we really pick it apart, I really feel like they're not only just getting it out, but then when we start processing it in a new way, it's just completely changes their emotional response and how they start to feel about themselves. And so I think, again, yeah, it comes down to really good collaborative reflection uh, when you're sort of working through these setbacks um, and offering new perspectives. Yeah, I think that's a really, again, you've highlighted a very important point that at that age, it's very difficult to know exactly how to really think about your relationship with failure. And so I think you could build it up, build it up. And if you haven't, and it's internalized, and you haven't actually spoken about it with anybody, and it's not lessons that are taught in schools, it's not. And sometimes going in to see a therapist or a psychologist becomes quite taboo, or they're nervous about it. So they can often, it can be left unresolved for quite a long time and create other barriers to their learning in different aspects of life as well. I think it's a important reminder for us to think about creating those conversations from when they are young and impressionable. So I like to end my interviews with a couple of questions with all my guests, and I'd love to be able to ask you the same thing, if you don't mind, is if you could go back today and whisper something to your teen self, not not change anything, not change yeah. anything, because I would I think, like we said, all setbacks, all failures, all part of it, and they all help you grow. But if there was a message you could give yourself as a young preteen or a teen that you know now, knowing now what you know now about yourself, what it would it be? Oh, wow. This, <laughs> this is so cool. Oh, what would I say? Um, I think I would have just... if. Um, maybe my teen self wouldn't know what it means but I think I would say something like you are so much more um, intelligent and brilliant than you realize 
whatever you think is, you know, your dilemma, it's just you're a perfectionist. I mean, that's what I probably would have said to myself. Yeah, of course, that's fantastic. It's a nice thing to think back on yourself worrying about those things, I suppose, given the fact that you've come on such a wonderful journey academically and professionally to be able to look back on that and think, though, that was my that was it. That's what I needed. Yeah. Which probably what makes you so wonderful with the work that you do. Who who are your role models and why? Oh, cool. Um, your questions are brilliant. I love these. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear that. Well, um, so yeah, so uh, my role models, um, I guess in general, um, I mean, my mom is definitely one of my role models. Uh, she's just the toughest, you know, strongest, most disciplined um, lady on the planet. Um, so yeah, she's definitely one of my role models. And hmm, who else? I can't think of another off the top of my head. Yeah, you don't need to have more than one. It's lovely to have your mum as your <laughs> as a person I you look up to. I think that's a really nice a nice way to end the interview. And if your mum listens, oh, I, I will we'll we'll give her a shout out and say thanks, mum, for raising such a wonderful daughter. Oh, okay. Yeah, she yeah, will. she'll probably uh, watch it knowing my mum. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, well, we we send her love from Singapore. I just want to say a big thank you for everything and thank you for being such a wonderful guest if you could change one thing for girls in the future what would you like to see change I think for me I really still want to see more equity in sport around just what is paid to female athletes and what is you know paid to to male athletes so tennis has definitely moved in the right direction in that regard but there is every other sport out there that needs to head in that space too yeah let's get that sorted hopefully sooner (laughs) than later and if anyone listening wanted to get in touch with you i know you work remotely so i've got listeners from across the globe but i know you can you can arrange for chats with people uh, online in the virtual world but also if you're based in singapore is the best way for people to get in touch with you via your website Yes, by my website and in there is my contact details. And then from there, they can just shoot me a WhatsApp message and yeah, I'll be in touch. And yeah, either virtual sessions is definitely viable. And it's actually a great way to do, um, to be able to do work these days. Really, really, really good. Yeah, it's been great for me too. I think it's been nice to connect with people all over the world. Yeah. So that website for everyone will be linked in the show notes. You will be able to get in touch with Dr. Jay Lee. And I encourage anyone who is thinking about having a chat with somebody or to help you think about your processes with your youngsters. This is a wonderful place to start. I could not uh, champion the work that Dr. Jay Lee is doing more if I tried. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Wonderful. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Oh, brilliant. Talk to you soon. Thanks so much for being here. And that's everything from us today. Thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations. I hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others. If you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast, I would also be hugely grateful. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prestipino from the Pine Studios 
for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.